in John chapter 2, we have Jesus' first miracle. The first one. Now, I have read this many times. And when I was looking at it this past week, I'm thinking, you know, I never read this like I read it to this time. Because I saw some things I just maybe have glossed over, I guess. But uh, there's many things that are here that uh, it's like, wow. All the times I've read this, I never thought of it in this line. It says on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. I read that, and I thought to myself, self, it seems sort of matter of fact. Number one, there's a wedding. Well, we need to know where the wedding is. Well, it was in Cana, a small village, maybe made up of maybe 50 families or so. It was in this little town, about nine miles from Nazareth. So it was, a, it was an easy walking distance for Mary to get to from Nazareth to Cana. And the idea is that it was the third day. The third day of what? It's the third day from when him and Nathaniel and the Philip and Andrew and Peter had their coming out, if you want to say, when they were called by Jesus to come follow me. Three days after that event, which is in chapter 1, is Jesus now finds himself at a wedding. And the interesting thing is, I noticed, well, here's what I noted when I was reading this. It says, they were in Canaan and Galilee, the mother of Jesus was there. And then it kind of says, Jesus also was there with his disciples. It's like, so why didn't they put Jesus first? No, but the mother of Jesus. Now, you might ask the question, well, why didn't they just say Mary? Well, we're going to find out because there are some things in here that many times people have taken the wrong way. So they're there at this wedding, and back then, weddings were a great event, like they are today. I mean, they, they just didn't do one day. They did several days. It was, in a, a town of 50 people, if you were to get married, everybody knew it. Everybody came. And the inference is that Mary, mother of Jesus, must have known either by relations or by friendship, who this couple is. We're never told who the couple is. We're never told anything about them. All we know is they're at this wedding. And Jesus, along also with his disciples, the five that we just talked about in chapter 1, are coming along with Jesus. Now, you know and I know that when you have a get-together, it's one thing to invite Sheila and I. But if it's Sheila and I and three more mouths, you might be like, well, wait a minute, we didn't... Ask the whole family. We just said, you two. But evidently, they had no problem with Jesus, Mary, and five more people showing up to this event. So they're there. He's invited to the wedding. At this wedding, for all of you who like to use this text to say that you like to drink wine, the wine ran out. Now, this is not a text to say, see, Jesus was at the party. Jesus drank wine. Jesus was there. He made wine. Therefore, I can drink wine. That's not what this is. That's not the point of this whole scenario. Just understand, he's at the wedding. The wine runs out. Okay? Socially, that was a, dis- been a disgrace to the people who had the party. If you were at the Green Bay Packers sitting at that nice big event with all that food, it would have been horrible. If they had run out for food, you would have talked about them. I cannot believe a multi-million dollar team can't afford to keep food for me to eat. Okay? 
Now, we say we don't talk about folks, but we do. You invite me to dinner, and all of a sudden, or a party or whatever, and the food runs out? Oh, I may not talk about you then. <laughs> but when we get home, I'm like, can you believe? And they had this big soiree, and we ran out of food and out of drinks. And this ain't right. Especially, like Sister Tammy said, when you like to eat, and it's free, hey, go for it. The wine runs out. Okay? Here's Mary, the mother of Jesus. She runs to Jesus, and she says, they have no wine. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? She's helping with this event. She's involved with it, probably involved in some of the planning, help, help serve, do whatever. She knows who Jesus is, because now Jesus is no longer the little bitty baby in a manger. He's a man now. He's probably around 30 years of age. She knew who he was from birth. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 29, where God tells her, By the way, that which is conceived of you is of the Holy Ghost. You shall bear a son. He shall save his people from the sin. In other words, you have God living in you. You're his mother. His father is God himself. This isn't any ordinary baby. This is God who's now taken upon himself the form of flesh. And she knew all about what God was going to do with him and how God was going to bring about. She knew all that as he was coming up. And when we get to this one part, because I had to struggle with to say, how am I going to explain this to my people so they don't think that Jesus is being a snob and being disrespectful? Because she says to Jesus, they have no wine. Basically, what are we going to do? They have no wine. Knowing that who he was. Notice what happens. Jesus said to her, woman. Now that that doesn't sound good. I mean, love my mother, but if one day she acts up and I just look at her and go, woman. You see that reaction she just had there? <laughs> see that look I got? That's what she would do. But you've got to understand the time and the culture and also understand where we are. Jesus is no longer her son as flesh and blood. He's, this is the beginning of his Chapter 2 to chapter 12 deals with Jesus' public ministry. He is now stepping out of from being under his mother, his father probably, most authors, most commentators believe his father is dead. Joseph is dead by now because we don't hear anything. We hear, all we hear of Joseph is when they go to the temple and he gets lost and they go out and find Jesus and he says, I must be about my father's business. That's the last thing we ever hear of Joseph, nothing else in the New Testament. So many believe that by the time we get here, he's already dead and gone. So Jesus would have been the, the one that was helping take care of his mother. And now he's stepping out up from under that and now beginning to do his public ministry. Jesus is there. He, he, she says to Jesus, I have, we have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, which translates bad from the Greek to our English. But it's basically what he would say was madam or ma'am. Why would he say that? Well, hold your thought. Because not only does he say woman, but he also says, what does this have to do with me? What concern is it of, of you and mine, of me, if they run out of wine? What's that got to do with us? So I said, well, that don't sound nice. Jesus just, is, just called his mother woman, and he just dismisses this, this, this whole thing about the wine. It has a lot to do with him. He's there at the party. Surely he could do something. He's letting her know that no longer 
does he submit to her? And that she's out of order because she wants him to do something that within the time frame of God may not be the right time. God knows when he was ready to step in and start his first miracle. Now, here's the amazing thing. She asked the request. Jesus tells her, woman, like, remind yourself, put you, let, me, let me explain something to you. This is no longer about me and you, son and, and mother. I am now, because he does say that in this, in this text, I must be about my father's business that I might be glorified. I told you at the beginning of this series, what is the point of John writing the book? John's writing this book so that we might know that Jesus is the son of God. Not a son, but the son. And all from this point onward, all the things that he does points to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the Son of God. Amen. Jesus, woman, what does that do with me? My hour has not yet come. The time for my resurrection, the time for my glorification, the time that where I'm going to be finally reign king of kings has not yet come. You're getting ahead. Yeah, I know you want me to do something for them. But if it's not of God's time, it's not about your time. It's about what God's time says. And I can make the application to that in our lives. It's not about you and your time. It's about God. Many times we get ahead of God. We need to walk with him. That's all he's doing. He's letting his mother know, oh, hold your, hold your horses. This ain't about you. This ain't because, I'm your, because you know who I am. No longer are you to look at me as your son. You're now to look at me as your Lord and Savior. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You brought life into this world. through the per And this young man, this man now is standing in front of you. And the man that you brought into the world is now the man that you have to call Lord and Savior. Go to Luke where, where Mary talks about, we call it the magnificent Expressions of Mary, where she talks about like, and expresses herself about how great the Savior is. Amen? So they have no wine. I will say this and then we'll be, I won't say it anymore. The Bible does not say that wine is bad. Okay? We have people who are teetotalers, total abstinence. God bless you. Have a smile upon you. If that is where you're at, great. The Bible, only thing the Bible really talks about is that it's the abuse of wine. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. If wine controls you, instead of you control it, you got a problem. Now, you and I as Christians can elect to do or not to do a lot of things. And I probably find people who hear this over the airwaves of the internet and everything else. I don't believe he said that, but I'm going to say it. Listen, if you elect to do or to drink alcohol, that's between you and the Lord. But here's the key. If you know or you're in the context of being with people who may not be as strong as you are, then you 
have the responsibility, and I have the responsibility to forgo my right to do so that I don't cause another brother to stumble. What you do in the privacy of your own home, what you do with people who are mature and able to handle it is one thing. But if you know you're in a context where there's weaker Christians, weaker people that are there, and they see you pick up a beer bottle, or they see you pick up a glass or a glass of wine, or whatever it is that we're drinking, and you know that might cause them to stumble, then you would be in the wrong because you are now causing the brother to stumble. And we don't want our brother to stumble. Or we should not want our brother to stumble. Amen? So whether you go from one side and say for me in my house we will drink absolutely nothing to the other side of the story where you're just getting sauced and, and drunk with wine to where you're in the middle says hey by moderation if I elect to drink every now and then so be it. But this is not the text that says drinking wine is alright because that's not what the point of the whole message what Jesus is trying to say is. He's at this one. Now, they're there. There's no wine. It just so happens that there were six stone water jars there. Conveniently, and that's convenient. They'd use these stones, these jars, for the rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. They had this problem, the Jewish religious people. They believed in a lot of washing of their hands. So, you know. so these big, gigantic water pots were placed outside of the venue, and they would constantly wash their hands. It was, it was a religious ritual. There was nothing that said that they had to continually wash their hands. I mean, they washed their hands for everything and anything. That's why the water was there. So these water pots are there. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Evidently, they used a lot of water there at this party. Fill them, and not just fill them, but fill them to the brim. Fill them to the very top of their capacity. They do it, and he said to them, now, after you fill it, take some to the headmaster, the head waiter, the guy that's kind of passing out the food and drinks and stuff, the, the, the maitre d', whatever you want to call him. Take it to him and let him taste what's going on here. Isn't it amazing that between the time, that's why he's marvelous. Jesus is marvelous. Why? Because between the time they fill the water jars to the time they dip it into the water to take it to the headmaster, the water changes from water to wine. Transformation. A change. The same way water was changed to wine is the same way God wants to transform us. Be ye therefore transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. God wants to change you and I, make us different, not saying with a little bit more goodness, but totally different, the absolute opposite of who we are. We're sinners, staying with the, sin, the state of sin, and God wants us to be transformed, different. Not the same person doing new things, that's a whole entire different new person doing the things of God. That's a miracle right there. That's why, Sister Tammy, that's a good song. He is marvelous. In his graciousness, he did not have to do this, but he did. And catch what he does here. The water becomes wine. And, and what we find out here, he said the headmaster that did not know when or how the water became wine. He didn't know where it came from. He had no idea. All he knew is, hey, this is tradition. Read on down through there. He says, wait a minute. He calls the bridegroom. Let me, let me tell you something, Mr. Bridegroom. Most people give the best first. 
The best wine is always served first because if they drink for a little while and this drinking is not to the point of intoxication, because contrary to what some of you might think, the wine that they drank wasn't. I did a lot of reading on this wine, trying to figure out what kind of wine was it. They had some very strong wine in those days. But the wine the majority of the people drank was not fully 100% fermentation to the point that you take one couple glasses and you would get knocked out. It was three to one. Three parts water, one part wine. It was very diluted. It was a little less intoxicating than for those of you who drink beer. It was less than that. That's what they were drinking. So it would take a lot of this wine to get you soft. But they would all, you know, you got two or three, four days of festivities here. People are drinking. They always gave the best. Now, all of a sudden, he says to the bridegroom, let me tell you something. I, this is the best I've ever had. Most people give the best first. But you have wait and save the best for last. What's that say to us? Jesus saves the best for last. The world tells us one thing, but Jesus says, wait a minute, if you do it my way, it's the best way. We don't believe it. We don't trust it. We don't have faith in it, but it is the best way. So he says, they have drunk freely the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. This is the first sign. What did he tell Nathaniel back in chapter 1? Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And he went, oh, my God, how did you know that? I was in Columbus. You were in Wilmington. How did you know I was in, under the fig tree? He's God. He knows all. He sees all. Ain't nothing you can do. Turn out the lights, get in total dark. Whatever, God sees it all. You know, that's why thieves and robbers and those of us that sneak around do things at night under the cloak of darkness. And they say the, the freaks come out at night. <laughs> Why? Cloak of darkness, brother. Hope that nobody has on a night light. Hope nobody has on their porch light. You know, back in the day when you're dating with your girlfriend, you, you didn't, the, light, the porch light was brightly lit. You know, you're thinking, where's mom and dad at? And they're going to get a little kissy-kissy in. You know, you did, just didn't go crazy because there was a light. And then if there wasn't a light, you knew there was a light and there was somebody in the front room. And if you had one of those porches that when you stepped on it, Oh, and you know, you were, you were sunk. You were praying that the light would go out so you could do things. Darkness. Amen. But he says, these are the first signs. This is the first thing that Jesus did. Why? I asked myself, why would he do this at a, at, at a wedding? Why, why at a wedding would he be there enjoying the social atmosphere and doing the things that are involved with weddings? And this is the first opportunity he says he's going to use to step out to let people know that he's the son of God. Because Jesus did it in Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. They were running out. They had no hope. So Jesus says, okay. Backtrack, Mary tells the servants, do whatever he says. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Question for you and I. Whatever Jesus said, what has Jesus said to you that you and I aren't doing? He's told some of us some things. 
If you're, in, if you're in the Bible, you're in the Word, you hear this Word of God being preached, He's told us something to do. We either obey or we what? Disobey. She says to the servants, do whatever He says. The fact that Jesus is at this wedding speaks to the fact that He holds marriage very highly. He honors the bond of marriage. In a culture, in a society that is against marriage, not same sex, but the marriage as God has designed it, man with woman, in holy matrimony as a covenant between them and God. That's the marriage we're talking about here. I heard a preacher friend, I should say, I won't say he's a friend of mine, but I feel like he's a friend of mine, tell somebody the other day, look, I could care less about the popularity of what culture says. About culture? It's about what the Bible says. Because they asked him a question. Well, you know, this is back, back when Sarah Palin was running for office. It was on CNN, and the lady said to the preacher friend, um, you know, she's out there in public. She's doing all this stuff. But, you know, in many of the churches that she would go to, she wouldn't be allowed to preach. So how do you handle that? He says, I don't handle it. How do you mean, well, how do I handle it? It comes back down to what is the Bible. The issue has never been talent or ability or intelligence. You miss the point if that's what you think. But what does the Bible say? The one thing that we don't want to go back to is what does the Bible say? If a man desires the office of a bishop, didn't say a person, didn't say if a man or a woman, but if a man, male personality, desired, he desires a good thing. Paul came back later on, and this is the one that drives a lot of women crazy. He says, but you got to know the context, he would not allow a woman to speak in public. But you got to understand what he's saying. And then you go back to the apostles, the disciples, all were men. Male personality has nothing to do with talent, gifts, or ability, but it has everything to do with the word of God. And yes, it's against the culture. Yes, it goes against everything that we're being taught about us expressing our gifts and our talents. If she has the gifts and talents and abilities, she should be allowed. No, she should not be allowed. Not because I say it, not because I don't want it, but because the Bible says. Because marriage and all that depicts who Jesus Christ is. He is the bridegroom. We're the bride of Christ. And with same-sex marriage and all this other stuff, it goes antithetically against everything of what God's trying to picture with the family, with the husband, with the wife, with the church. It goes totally contrary to everything that God has set up. You cannot be fruitful and multiply. You cannot show Christ as the bride, as the bridegroom, and we as the bride. All that stuff is done away with when you deal with all that. That's why it's an abomination of God. It's not about people and personalities. It's about, it goes against, do you realize that that's the only sin that God sent down fire from heaven to destroy two cities for. It's not just any other sin. God destroyed a whole two cities because of what was going on in there. That's why. It's not, well, I know Christians, we just need to be more loving. What does that mean? What does it mean to be more loving? You can't be more loving than God. Pastor, you can say that because it's not in your home. It's not in your family. You don't have Look, I thought our, our governor had a good answer. He didn't go as far as I wanted him to go, but he had a pretty decent answer. It was decent because they asked him that question. If your daughters were gay, what would you do? 
He said, I would love them and support them and be with them. I said, amen. I would too. I would love my sons or daughter. I would support them, whatever I can to be with them. But know this, and I've told them that, and I will tell you this. I will not be at your wedding. No, can't do it. Will not do it. Why? Because when I go, I am affirming and, and giving credence to what you're doing. And what you're doing is against everything I believe. Oh, I'll be there for you. I will love you to the utmost. But I cannot in good conscience and faith go and support what you're doing. Why? Because the standard is not about them. The standard is about what does God say in his word. You got to take emotion and feeling out of it. And you got to say, God, it's a hard way. It's a narrow way. There will be few, few there be that will be able to walk through it. Why? Because it's a hard thing to tell your best friend that you grew up in high school with or your son or your daughter, I can't do this with all the love that I have for you. Because if I do it, I go against my conscience and my belief in what God has said. That's a tough thing to do. I'm not acting like it's easy, but you got to do it because the word of God stands above our own family, personal feelings and relationship. It's a tough thing. That's why I tell people all the time, you want to be a Christian? We're going to find out who true Christians are in this age. We're going back to where all of this ain't going to mean a whole lot. People want to see it lived out. They will see us, well, you're the church? Really? Oh. What does the Bible say? That no, we are Christians by our love. Love covers a, there it is. You like to say this all, some of us like to say this, love covers a multitude of sins. In the body and outside the body. That means some of us in here and some of us out. You got to, you know, that's just the way it is. Will I offend you? Yes, sir, I certainly will. Not out of volition, not out of maliciousness. It just happens in life. Because you know, let me let you know this. You've offended me. Go, go figure. So since we're offending one another, we got to learn how to handle offenses. And some of you are missing out on your blessing on Sunday school class because I think we're having a great time in Sunday school. I mean, everything that we're talking about has helped you and me to be better in the body of Christ. You can avail yourself to it or you don't have to. You are what you are. Point one, honors marriage. Point two, bestows gifts freely. He lavished on them. Can you imagine basically 120, 180 gallons of wine? That's a lot of wine. Even for a couple, two or three days. Not bottles. Even if it's bottles, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of wine. God bestowed on them the gift above and beyond. Sister Penny was talking about that this morning in Sunday school. God is so good, he gives us above and beyond what we can't even imagine or think. Has he not done that in your life? Just look at where you are today. Many of us are like the children of Israel. We're living in houses we did not build. We're living in places where we did not have to go to. God's blessed us. We're driving cars at 10, 15, 20. People can only imagine that we'd be driving these kind of cars. Food on your table, clothes on your back health and strength. Kids are doing well. I mean, just go not count your blessings. God's been good. He's lavished on us. Just like he's lavished on them at the wedding. The one whose infinite love is made effective by his equally infinite power. 
His great love shows his great power. Nothing too hard for God. I don't care where you are in life, what you're doing, whatever. Nothing too hard for God. Give it to him. Got a wife, got a husband, and they ain't acting right? Give it to Jesus. Say, Lord, I have, I'm trying to change them, but they, they're not going to change because of you. Nobody will ever change because of me. If there's any change that comes, it comes because the Lord has worked on the altar of their heart and changed from a hard heart to a soft heart. That's how it's done. I don't care how hard I preach. I don't care how much I preach. I will never be able to change men, women, boys, and girls' lives. But I can't ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that God pounds and breaks and knocks and does what he does through the power of the Holy Spirit to get you and I to submit and lay our lives down, surrender, as we learned in Sunday school, Surrender to him. Because you're not going to change because I say it. Most of you don't care what I say anyway. I preach every Sunday eight hours and my life goes out of me. And he's like, okay, well, that's wonderful. Come back next week. We'll see what else he's going to say. That's fine. But God can change and does change us because of his infinite power. Last but not least, he who is the son of God, full of grace and glory. Notice his disciples, they believed in him from the end of chapter 1 to now. But when they saw this, what does it say? And the disciples believed in him. Now they, well, whoa, okay. We heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We know he, he's the Son of God, but now, and they're going to get ready to see. What did Jesus tell Nathaniel? Great. You think it's a big deal because I saw you under the fig tree reading the scriptures and I knew you were coming? That's a big deal to you? Greater works than that am I going to do. This, the same group of disciples are going to see Jesus raise somebody from the dead. They're going to see him give sight to a blind man. Just walk up and, and, and make a blind person from birth be able to see. They're going to see him take a lame man that could not walk and allow him to walk. They now have saw him take water, H2O, in its simplicity and miraculously, marvelously change it into wine. And the same Jesus that they have is the same Jesus you and I have. What has he done? What, what marvelous things has he done in your life? Start telling the story. God's been marvelous to every single person in this room under the sound of my voice. You may not know it. You may not think it. But he's been marvelous. Thank you. That's my next word. Praise him. Stand up there and shout for the Vikings, for the Bengals, for the Browns, for the Packers, for the Cowboys. And you and I will sit on God. With his goodness? What woke you up this morning? Look around. Go outside. The next five minutes, you're going to go outside and look at the sun that's shining brightly, the greenness of the grass, the greenness of the leaves, the warmness in the air. You're going to get ready to sit down and eat something in a few moments. Thank God he's a marvelous. He has been marvelous. He has been marvelous. What? Praise. The Lord. I ought to praise him. I don't care how bad it is in your life. Praise him for his goodness. Because he doesn't have to be. But he's a marvelous God. Amen? Is he marvelous? Yes, he is. And if you don't say it, I'll say it myself. He's been marvelous. Marvelous. Amen? 
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's the first miracle that you exhibit your power. John already told us we're going to see this because we need to know who you are. And we're living in a world today that people want to know who is Jesus. And we're going to see his power manifested.